This is the Traditionalist, the Victor Davis Hanson podcast. I'm Jack Fowler, the former publisher at National Review, talking today with Victor Davis Hanson, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also the Wayne and Marsha Busk Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor is the best-selling author of many books, military historian, forthcoming book we want to encourage our listeners to check out that is the dying citizen that's out in october but it's available now on amazon so victor busy week on capitol hill for the folks that just cannot get enough of donald trump there is a january 6th commission that was uh, proposed by the democrats approved by the house with the votes of 35 house republicans it's before the Senate. Victor, what are your thoughts about this commission, its purpose, its intention, and uh, is it going to be possibly an exploding cigar in the face of Democrats? I'll get to the latter very quickly, but it's the Mueller 22-month, $40 million Russian hoax investigation redukes. It's Ukraine, Ukraine, the first impeachment redukes. It's the second impeachment is what it's all about. The so-called Donald Trump ordered people. To, and that's what's specifically about storm the Capitol. And again, the theme is that they don't have any issues. Liz Cheney only lasted about a week. The war was 11 days, but they don't have any other issue to distract them from the reality that nobody wants these issues that are at the core of the democratic agenda. They don't want an open border. They don't want the new green deal right now. They do not want to print money. They do not want to stop the exploration of uh, gas and oil. They like fracking and they do not like critical race theory. They do not like the propaganda in the school. So that's the first thing to understand. It goes back to Donald Trump racist they're in your bedroom, they're under your car, they're in the closet, they're everywhere, and we've got to stop them. The second thing about it is, and you asked me if it's going to boomerang, but they're starting on the premise that this was an armed insurrection organized by ringleaders, ordered by Donald Trump, and thankfully put down by brave police officers and all recorded with mounds of evidence. And that's what we're going to show the American people. And therefore, they will support the fact that we put 30,000 troops initially in Washington, barricades, Bob wire, and General Austin, the Secretary of Defense, is now going over all of his enlistment list to find any alt-right sympathizers or members of this group and we're going through all of american popular culture and our institutions to root out these white crazy insurrections okay but they have i don't know 30 40 and julie kelly at american greatness has just been wonderful about this they have them locked up right and most of them are in solitary they've had no bail they've been in there since early january for the most part and guess what none of them have been charged with insurrection treason, conspiracy, none of them yet. Usually it's they're just sitting there waiting for some prosecuting attorney to find an incriminating clip from what, I don't know, 15, 16,000 hours, or maybe it's more of videotapes all around the Capitol. They can't find anything. When they say Chuck Schumer just keeps saying it's an arms insurrection, it's the worst thing since the Civil War. But 
nobody has been arrested that nobody that was arrested had a gun. Right. Use, nobody used a gun. They couldn't use it if they didn't have it. And three, they haven't found any insurrectionary leaders. They haven't found a manifesto that said group A goes in this entrance. Group right. B goes to this entrance. Group C brings in ties to kidnap Nancy Pelosi and with these plastic ties. We found now the plastic ties were the police's. Right. And number four of the five people, they said, you know, they said five people killed in capital assault. Insurrection loses five Americans. Well, four of them were demonstrators, pro-Trump people. The one person we were told who was murdered and he had to lie in state. I mean, that was a tragic officer sickness. We know that the first story was not true, that his head was bashed in with a fire extinguisher by an enraged Trump maniac. Story number two, that somebody sprayed him with bear spray and he had an allergic reaction diet is probably not true. You might argue that the tension of the general atmosphere led to a cerebral hemorrhage or a stroke, but we don't really know that because we haven't even seen the autopsy report. But we do know that the the narrative has changed three or four times and he did not die violently. And the other four either had health issues and had heart attacks, or I think one person was trampled. But we only have one person. We're left with one person that died violently, Ashley Bobbitt. And she was a 14-year military veteran. She probably committed a felony by going through a, a Capitol window, but people were being greeted by the police. But she was shot while unarmed. And under American protocol in 2021, if you're shot unarmed, about a nanosecond later, we have the policeman's name, his age, his picture, his race, everything about him, and we follow every detail of the ongoing investigation, and the DA goes out and virtue signals how awful it is. Mm -hmm. We haven't had any of that. We don't know who to this day who shot her or why he shot an unarmed woman. And so if you really want to have an investigation... And Republicans will out. That's all going to come out. And remember, Donald Trump, each day that this goes on, is one day further from the presidency. He has no social media. He's not weighing in. They've emasculated him from all of his tools of communication. And so the idea that you're going to take this presidential corpse of Donald Trump and keep kicking and stepping on him is, is going to be counterproductive. It's going to gain him empathy, and his polls are steady or have gone up. And I don't see the I don't see quite the logic other than it's a distraction because their agenda has no popular support. Well, Donald Trump remains critical to the left, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. We know that that you can see that, Jack, that when they did not have Donald Trump in the Democratic primary of 2020, they had nothing. And all of the radicals terrified the country. And then they nominated Joe Biden. Right. And then it was very clear that he had cognitive issues. So what he outsourced the campaign to the media and the Democratic Party and Silicon Valley money. And they only did one thing. Donald Trump is Satan. No, Donald Trump is Putin's puppet. No, Donald Trump is the, you know, Lucifer. They, they, they kept coming up with creative Donald Trumps because they had nothing else. And then they won and they changed a lot of the procedures by which we voted, you know, 100 and million mail-in and early voting for the first time in our history. And then there was a transition. And we still didn't hear what Joe Biden was going to do other than Donald Trump was Dr. Death and caused the 
COVID, that Donald Trump was Dr. Doom and caused the recession, that Donald Trump was Dr. Lockdown and caused the quarantine, that Donald Trump was Dr. Cheater and colluder that ruined the, the electoral process. And then guess what happened? Joe Biden took office on January 20, and suddenly we had to look at Joe Biden. And we looked at him and we found, wow, he really did have an open border. Wow, there's chaos. Wow, he really did stop new leasing for gas and oil. Wow, he really did cancel these pipelines. Wow, he really does slur his words. I didn't know that. Wow, he lost his train of thought. Wow, he gets mad. Wow, he trips on the plane. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. He's going to redo the Middle East and cause a war. Wow. He's, I didn't know that. He never told me that during the, the campaign. He didn't say that during the transition. It was all about Trump. There is no more Trump now, Jack. There is no more COVID as a growing pandemic. It's on the wane. There are vaccinations, Operation Warp Speed. So they don't have anything. And what they have is a turnoff. So it's Donald Trump. And so they're going to go out and dig him up. And they can't impeach him a third time because he's not impeachable when he's not in office. He can be convicted if he is impeached, but not re-impeached, I don't think, But although I'm not going to rule that out. Right. But now it's Donald Trump, the insurrectionist who sent armed insurrectionaries into the Capitol to kidnap and kill people and killed Officer Sicknick. Victor, you mentioned Dr. Death, and uh, you referred to a, essentially to a compliant media, and that might bring us to the next uh, part of today's episode. We'll go back to Capitol Hill in a minute, but this has to do with the brothers Cuomo, and the news came out earlier this week that Chris Cuomo, the CNN guy, since his brother, the, the, who is the doctor death in this in this combination, who has the worst, New York has the worst death record. And by the way, in New York, they're still have not, they still have not changed the laws about regarding how the handicapped in group homes are being treated. It's, it's, it's truly satanic. But Chris Cuomo, behind the scenes, has been helping his brother with media advice on how to handle these serial pervert crises. So you have these two... I think totally deplorable people, not in the sense that you and I are deplorable, Victor. Any thoughts about the brothers Cuomo? Yeah. When I see something that doesn't make sense, that a person who presided over one of the worst reactions to the COVID virus, and I'm talking about deaths per, I guess the only thing that we can concentrate on are deaths, what, deaths per million people. And if I'm not mistaken, New York is what, 2,600, 2,700 per million people, deaths. And it's, I mean, it's not even, it's not even close to other countries. I, excuse me, Jack, I'm, I'm forgetting them. And I think New Jersey or Connecticut may be close. But yeah. um, if I'm too close to home, you warn me. That's all right. It's, we'll it's he, I think Jersey technically, but it's yes. uh, New but York. But my point so. is he has the worst record. Right. And it was a disaster. And he unleashed that virus into pristine populations in rest homes. And then did he get a Grammy Award, I think, from Hollywood? Or was it an Emmy? I it was an Emmy. Yeah, it was an Emmy. So they rewarded that because he got on television. And then he violated every standard of journalistic jurisprudence where he had his own brother interview him in this sort of mock uh, laughing ha-ha-ha. And how, how was he able to get away with this? The worst thing was he took a book and got a $5 million advance. And he only sold 
what, 50,000 copies? As, as an author, I can tell you that that did not earn back that advance. <laughs> right. That would be, I think, he would have needed $100 per book and up. It doesn't make sense. So you ask yourself, why, how did this mythology, how was it created? And Donald Trump offered him a hospital ship. He offered him ventilators. And, and what was going on as, remember, take us back in time to the primaries in February, March, right at the start of the outbreak in April. And you remember that Joe Biden was struggling, but people were talking about Andrew Cuomo as a backup in case Michael Bloomberg petered out. And of course, then Biden recovered and Bloomberg imploded. And then it was, well, maybe Cuomo will be there if we need him. A white moderate, who's not moderate, but compared to what Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Beto, don't forget Beto, he was. And then Joel got the nomination. People thought, well, we have to have a black woman, but let's not forget Andrew Cuomo. He's there too, if this doesn't work out. So he was considered useful or had utility for the left in 2020. And therefore, they overlooked all of this. And now, I think they learned from Al Franken that you never let principle hurt your political chances. And so now they say to him, they say, well, this SOB killed a lot of people in Reston, maybe 15,000. This SOB didn't have a clue what he was doing. And he had one of the highest death rates of any state in the nation during the pandemic. This SOB clowned around with his brother and kind of warped his CNN coverage of him. And this SOB had a sweetheart deal with publishers to publish a book and get a lot of money on the side for who knows what reasons. And this SOB most recently, Jack, has about eight or nine women have come forward and say that he sexually harassed them and habitually so. And for us, and for most people, it said, this guy is now expendable. And the Democrats are saying, nah, we did that with Al Franken. We don't do that. He's never, nobody's expendable if they're useful. So we're just going to waive all of our humanitarian worries about the dead. And we're going to waive our, our championship of media integrity and, you know, champion, excuse me, championing of media integrity and sexual ha- harassment. You know, it's he said, he said, it's way back 30 years ago. It's, it's not like Brett Kavanaugh, although it is that same time span or even much more recent. So that's where we are. He's useful. They consider for some keeping New York or for a possible presidential race or if Joe Biden fades out. But I think like the Capitol insurrection dash quote unquote investigation that they're going to regret it, keeping him viable given all the baggage he has. Let's go back to Capitol Hill again. And uh, Liz Cheney has has been replaced as the number three leader in the House Republican leadership by Elise Stefanik, Congresswoman from New York. We've talked about Cheney before. Again, I don't understand the principle that if you can't lead your caucus and if your caucus doesn't want you to lead them, why that's a crisis of, of any kind. The leadership should be reflective. But anyway, that said, Victor, do you have any thoughts about her, not only her ouster, it really should be her replacement, but how she has responded to that? I'm very baffled because there's three three issues here that nobody seems to talk about. You mentioned the first one is that 
that position is the third, the person who sort of galvanizes the votes and can count votes. That person is not usually in that much of an ideologue. It's a stepping stone for the second and then the majority or maybe the speaker someday. And the criterion by which you're successful or, or fail is the solidarity you have with your group and how well you advance the consensus of the majority view. So her view that she has is not the majority. So by definition, she just she shouldn't want that job. But so the fact that she does want to stay in that job means she only sees it as a stepping stone and not as something to further a Republican interest in the midterm. The second thing I don't understand is that no one was more reviled as a Halliburton crook or a war criminal than Dick Cheney. Most of it was completely unfair. So she grew up in that atmosphere of hate Dick Cheney. She, they called him a Nazi. They called him a corporate lackey. They called him everything. So she understands what the left is capable of. And yet that's not what she's interested in right now. She's focused on Donald Trump. And then the third thing that I don't understand is she's running in Wyoming and she thinks she's going to be elected again. And they're leaking some things about some of her opponents she may be. But the strategy seems to be I'm going to pick up every Democrat or independent voter in Wyoming, all what, 25 percent of them? Mm-hmm. or 20 and I'll get the Democrats to endorse me when they drop out or I, and then I'm going to split the Republicans and then I'm going to be reelected. I, I don't think anybody in their right mind believes that's possible or I'm going to be a CNN or MSNB commentator or my, I'm going to be part resurrect the never Trump. So the alternatives that are there for her are, are not very well. And then finally, Maybe you can enlighten me because I'm, I'm not being rhetorical. <laughs> I'm, I'm not being rhetorical. Maybe the listeners can think about this. But until January of 2021, this year, she voted about 93% with Donald Trump. She was careful to tell her constituencies, if you review her campaign literature, that she had she was a Trump supporter. Dick Cheney broke ranks with the Bushes and endorsed Donald Trump. Remember that? He, mm-hmm. he was clear like Donald Rumsfeld. He was not like George W. Bush. Okay. She voted for Donald Trump in 2016. She voted for him in 2021. So what changed all of a sudden? She says it's the Capitol. But we, the more we hear about the Capitol, as we just discussed, the more the, the story gets complex. So all I can think of is that she was for Trump and she accepted the reality that he was kingmaker of the party But then for a brief hiatus, he was disgraced, she felt, and his popularity dived, and he was banned from Twitter. So he was now a non-entity loser. And somewhere between January 6th and, I don't know, to take an arbitrary date, April 15th, she saw an opening that she was going to stab the dead corpse of Donald Trump with her spear as he's on the ground and, and run with it. And then all of a sudden that vanished when most people thought, you know what, this is just another left wing thing. Donald Trump will get up and now he's back. And so she's always a day late and a dollar short. But what I'm surprised about is the family is known for having sharp political instincts, but she doesn't have any. She doesn't have any. You remember, Victor, she tried to knock out Mike Enzi. Yeah, she did. And. She offended every, I mean, the Simpson family, uh, Al Sim- everybody in Wyoming was aghast that he was a solid, good conservative. 
But so she does not have good instincts. And she's apparently, you know, she got in a fight with her own sister, remember that, years ago about her mm-hmm. gayness. And she doesn't have good instincts. And her father had excellent instincts. And you can't just say that you're going to nine and a half times out of ten vote for Donald Trump and then purse his agenda and then vote for him and then lead everybody in that crusade to make sure the agenda is reified. And then suddenly within a three-week period say, oh my gosh, I'm not going to mention one Democrat, one liberal, one Biden disaster after another. I'm just going to focus on how Donald Trump's the worst thing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's what she's doing. Victor, we have to uh, talk a little bit in the little time we have left about that aspect of you that is, uh, you know, made you what you are. Uh, not a farmer, which did make you what you are, but that you were a professor of classics. And on your website, victorhansen.com, which is known as Private Papers, where there's a ton now daily of original content that you're only going to see here. You have a couple of uh, sections. One we'll talk about, I hope, next week on the historian, your historian aspect. You're writing a three-part series on the firebombing of Japan at the end of World War II. But on the classics side, under your Eeyore's cabinet section, there's a little bit of Eeyore in you. Uh, You talk about this work by Petronius, Satyricon. I hope I've said it right. Yes. You taught Latin literature. And I know I'm not going to say this right. Cena, uh, Tria. Cana Comalcionis. I wasn't even in the, in the ballpark. But Victor, this is a work of Latin literature that everything ancient is new again. It's very relevant to our current times. Would you like to talk about this piece you've written yeah. on your website? Well, very briefly in the... The reign of Nero, there was a nobleman called Petronius Arbiter, the judge. And apparently, from what we learned from Tacitus, he found delights for the emperor. In other words, he tasted the food, he tried the sex, he tried the parties, and then he would give his recommendations. And he either wrote a Kendallstein novel or he wrote a satire. And it probably the Tromalchio character may be, have Neronian characteristics, but it was a really large novel, and it's kind of a mock odyssey about young wastrels who go down to the Bay of Naples, Capri area, the richest part of Italy at that time, and they wander around, and they wander around in a period of relative peace inside Italy, where the Roman Empire was 70 million people from Iraq to the Atlantic Ocean and from you know, the Rhine and Danube all the way to the Sahara Desert. So it's it's an inter- huge, wealthy empire, and the wealth is pouring in right where they are. And people from all over the world are there. And this novelist then chronicles these people, these young 20-something, and what are their characteristics that he's trying to emphasize in a very weird, dangerous, wink-and-nod novel vis-a-vis Nero, because He wants to titillate his audience, but he also knows that he's making fun of Nero and what Nero represents in Rome, and he's going to die from it. He has to commit suicide from what we know. But in this novel, and we only have two large fragments, I think 16th and 15th book from memory, can't remember, but it was a huge book. And we have the uh, 
the middle part. And in this, young men travel and they go to a dinner, the Cana Tromalcionis, and they see these big obese people. And they have no education, but they are bragging about mythology and literature, and they get every name wrong, every citation wrong. They pass wind, they think they're doctors, they give crackpot ideas on medicine, they brag about their wealth, they try to, to name drop. And the people themselves, the younger people that have come into this dinner, they're connivers. They get free meals, they're flatterers, they hear about Croton, a place where everybody's old and rich and they don't have heirs and they don't want to work. So they're going to go back down there and see if they can find a rich legacy. Sexually, they're sexually ambivalent. One thing they're not going to do is what the old Italian yeoman, the backbone of the Roman legion did, was marry someone, have four or five kids and have a small farm. They don't get married. Uh, They're sexually ambivalent. Uh, They suffer from impotence. They suffer from uh, vanity. They suffer from jealousy. And they make fun of working people. They make fun of legionnaires. They make fun. And what the message is, from what we can tell in this brilliant satire is that when you combine money and leisure and general affluence and safety and security, and for all the autocracy of the emperor, really, when you look at the empire from what we know from inscriptions and local jurisprudence documents and things like that, there was a level of habeas corpus and representative government at the local level. So it's a pretty Nice place to be compared to the alternative. And what yet the the author seems to say is when things are so easy, then people become soft and decadent and they don't embrace the very values of their ancestors that gave them that freedom and security. And if you translate that to uh, American, I I read it as an undergraduate in Latin and I've taught in Latin a lot. It's, It's very, it's, it's very strange Latin. It's colloquial Latin and, And yet it's got a very elevated style in some of the narrative. But we translate that to America. It's kind of eerie Mm -hmm. that we seem to, as a Western country, have a lot of affinities with Rome, especially our youth. They're not getting married. I think the average age of marriage has gone from 23 to 28. The average age of a first child has gone from about 25 to 32. And even scarier, the 2.4 before 9-11 or 2.3 average children is now down to 1.8. And so we've got all these kids that, and I think those were the faces when I read that, when I looked at Antifa, I said, these people come right out of the pages of the Satyricon because they're not getting married. They tend to be prolonged adolescents. They're very vocal and they act as if they're educated but they're actually learn very little in college they have enormous debt they're very envious of successful people they want something for nothing they're feigning as if they're intellectuals or knowledgeable they're not and their lives are one of being indebted of living with somebody or not being married to someone of not having a children and all of the stimuli that create conservatism in young people having to worry about somebody other than yourself, like a spouse, having to sacrifice and work extra hours to support children, having a mortgage and having a home and repairing it, buying a car. They don't seem to have any of that. So remember, I just finished, Jack, remember those two ads 
that the Obama administration ran. One was the life of Julia. And they right. said, you know what? You've got a she's your model. And it's a single woman with a single child late in, uh, in her right. 30s. And she just talks about all the time she's been on the dole her whole life from what preschool all the way to her retirement. It's all government money. And we're going to do this for you. And then the other one was this weird pajama boy. This, right. Remember him? He had the yeah. hot, hot you know, chocolate. Right. You he don't want your like, daughter bringing him home. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he was, I mean, if my daughter had ever brought home with that, I don't know what I would do. I would <laughs> right. tie him to a disc and drag him around the vineyard <laughs> like Hector's corpse. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. He, They thought we were going to be infatuated and want to support Obamacare because a guy had pajamas with footsies on them, the little foot pads you knew you were two, you were three, you wore. And he was uh, drinking, what, hot chocolate? Hot chocolate, right. Didn't it say something? Drink hot chocolate, wear pajamas, get Obamacare. And it was weird that they were championing this dependency, this this adolescence, this, this boy, man, and girl, woman. And it didn't make any sense, but it, it's very Petronian. That's why I wrote the piece. It, it brings up a larger philosophical question that a lot of the philosophers, especially in the school of German pessimists, have raised. But also de Tocqueville, you know, in Democracy in America in the 1830s also introduced it. And that is, in a democracy, in a constitutional government, you can create a lot of nihilism and dependency and a lack of, I don't know, challenge, strife, something that puts you on your toes and keeps you stable and keeps you in touch with your ancestors and your community. And you sort of convince yourself that you're immune from natural forces like the weather or natural disasters or drought because you're so brilliant and you're so wealthy at this particular moment. And it's something that people in the West have to be very careful about. And then as one of the themes of Satyricon comes, I think, also in Democracy in America, and Tocqueville says, you know, most people, unfortunately, would prefer that they be poor if everybody was equally poor, then they would be richer if some people were more were better off. In other words, general prosperity is not as good if some people are more prosperous than the other, they would rather Equity. have a depression. Yeah, I mean, we can see that today. And that's sort of the, the theme of these three, that they're making everybody who has money and successful into a bore. They don't like them, and yet they're envious of them. They, they want stuff. This is the Satyricon. There's no link to it. But as you say, they're fragments. I know it's available on Amazon, but you've written a wonderful piece about it. Next episode, we'll talk about some of the other pieces you've written here. I know you still have got to finish your three-part series on, as I mentioned before, the bombing of Japan. You've got a wonderful three-part series about growing up on the farm and and you're dispelling your wife of any thoughts about the strength of bumblebees on the porch, I think. Well, there's a beautiful passage in there about bumblebees, Victor. But anyway, we recommend folks go to victorhanson.com. While you're there, you'll find a link also for The Dying Citizen your forthcoming book. Thank you, Jack. I just put in with one thing. I'm trying to have some original content for readers. So I have something called Optimism Incorporated, some thoughts about why we should not be so 
depressed. And then Eeyore's cabinet that Jack mentioned, some reason why we might want to be depressed. Be depressed. <laughs> uh, another weekly, the third called words that don't matter and how they've distorted, they being the left, have distorted language in a vain attempt to alter reality. And then I have a child's garden of animals. And that's what Jack was talking about, bumblebees, growing up on a farm and how uh, important it was for young people to be connected with nature, something we've lost, where the which direction the wind blows or what a different type of cloud portends for the weather, all of that connectiveness that we've lost. And then I have something called the historian's corner, and that's what the firebombing. So I'm going to try to do those each week. One of those uh, categories will appear for the readers, and it'll be original content. Victor, thanks so much, and we'll be back soon with the next episode of the Victor Davis Hansen podcast, The Traditionalist. Mm-hmm.